This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Interesting topic for, uh, for tonight. So the way that we're going to go tonight is, uh, you know, we'll give a, um, I guess, a small, long, short class, depending on your attention span. And then we'll open it up for, you know, questions and answers. You could ask me about anything about Judaism. So let's go through a few different, you know, ideas which I find uh, very important. First of all, most of you probably don't know who I am. So let me tell you a little bit about, uh, about who I am. So my name is Yahushua Zitron. I have been teaching um, for about nine years now. And there is something very interesting that I found. And so as you, as you start getting into the public eye and as you start you know, speaking in different venues, you have people that come and talk to you, ask you questions, and you get to learn a lot about people. And there was something that I found very, very fascinating, unfortunately fascinating, that you know, I speak to people that are religious. They are born and raised religious, but yet they don't really believe in God. They don't believe. So the topic today was the foundation of Judaism. One of the core foundations of Judaism is that you have to believe that there is a God. And if there is no God, then everything falls away. The Torah makes absolutely no sense. It makes no difference. Nothing matters if there's no God. So everything stands on the idea that there has to be a God. So today, the way that I, want, that I presented this, uh, this class is in a way and how I, I've done you know, quite a few debates in my time and I am going to sort of give you my secrets on how I would do it if I would have to debate someone to prove somebody that there is a God. So first uh, there was, a, um, it was an interesting social experiment that I saw where you have a guy with a camera and another guy with a microphone. They were going around and they were asking people, do you believe in God? And the responses were fascinating. There was, a, there was quite a few yeses, but then there were some no's. And I actually wrote down the no's on what. So they said no, and then they continued after that. So the question was like this. Do you believe in God? No. Then what do you believe in? They believe in a higher power. So let me stop it right here. Um, you can call it whatever you want. But there are, most of these people, they actually believe in God. They call it something else. Have you ever heard of the, of the thing? Uh, the universe uh, is sending me this. You believe in God? No, 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 no. But the universe is telling me, is showing me, is guiding me to go over here. I'm like, oh, you believe in God. You want to call the universe? Call the universe. You want to you, you call it Buddha? You call it whatever it is, but you believe in God. You're just calling it something else. Uh, there was one of, one of my favorite ones is, um, do you believe in God? No, but I'm a spiritual person. I'm like, how? How? How can you? What, what, do you believe in spirituality? No, but I'm a spirit. Do you know what spirituality? And in fact, when they were asking this, when the guy was asking this on camera, he was, he was like, do you believe in God? No, I'm a spiritual person. What does that mean? I don't know. So they, ask, they attest themselves to a certain organization, a certain uh, you know, sect, but they don't even know what that, what that sect is. There was um, another, another idea is karma. Have you ever heard of, do you believe in God? No, I believe in karma. Like the same thing as me that can I get me down, measure for measure. You know, you believe in karma. Well, what is that? How does that work? If everything is random and everything came from nowhere, what does that mean that there is karma? Karma means that if you do something bad, bad will come back to you. Why? Why? Is there a, uh, some sport, sort of spiritual being that's running it? No, no, no. It's just karma. Like, how could you explain that? People cannot explain it. The, m- most, most of the things, most of the ideas behind this is that people tend to not think for themselves. People tend to be told what to be thinking. Um, I shouldn't be saying that, you know, you guys are all probably in college, but it's very, very strong in college. And this is what, they tell you what you're supposed to be thinking, the questions that you're supposed to be asking. We're going to be speaking about this in a little bit about evolution. And uh, in a textbook, they were asking, do, um, how did the humans evolve? How do you see humans evolve in, through evolution? So meaning, 
They're telling the children not how to think, but they're telling them what to think. They're already telling them evolution happened. And now explain to me, sir, so you're being told what to think. No one actually thinks for themselves. People usually repeat what they hear. No one actually, and, and I've, I've had these debates with people that are, you know, don't believe in anything, and they cannot answer the most simplest questions. The, you know, one of the questions that, uh, that uh, one of the answers that they, were, they answered was, uh, do you believe in God? I don't know, never really thought about it. Like, that's kind of one of the most important questions that you could think about during your life. If you, re- if you think about it, it's going, to, it's going to guide everything that you do is if you believe in God or you don't believe in God. So to not think about it, and Rabbi Chaim Shmulavit says this, the most important decision that you will ever make in your life is whether you believe in God or whether you do not believe in God. So I was thinking about this, and, you know, and there's something that, you know, I guess, this is actually important information, not only for this, it's important information for anything. If someone ever asks you for advice and they ask you a question, you should know that they're asking you the question and then there is like the root of what's really bothering them. And you, I see that a lot when people ask me about God. They don't really care about God. There's something bothering them in, inside. So the idea behind this is, is that, let's say, for example, somebody will come and say, uh, how could there be a God if there's so much bad things happening? Now, Ms. Alderson will answer that tonight, but on the, on the back end, that's not really this guy's question or the girl's question. Really, the question is, is that I'm hurting right now, and I'm going to pre- you know, present it in this question. Whenever you're dealing anything, this is good for business, this is good for anything, this is even good for, you know, for, for tests and, and in co- anything that you do in life, this is very important. Someone asks you a question, there is two aspects that you need to think about. One, the question. Two, what the person is really asking. What's really bothering that person? So... I was trying to look at, uh, you know, uh, the ideas of why people don't believe in God. And I was able to break it off into three categories. And amongst those categories, they had, you know, subcategories. So number one, which was, uh, and, and by the way, almost every single question about God can be broken up into two, two separate, um, let's call it like, I don't know, head topics. One is intellectual and one is emotional. Now, 99.9% of all questions are going to have a combination of both intellectual and emotional. Well, what do I mean about, about that? The asking a question about God, so it could be where, where it stems from. There could be, an, yeah, no, I'm intellectually curious. I don't know. But then there's also an emotional aspect. I want to believe that there is God. I don't want to believe that there is God. There's different things that are balancing it. One of the most difficult things when people go and ask you these types of questions is to pinpoint where really that's bothering that person and answer what that person really wants. So, when you break it down to why people don't believe in God, I was able to break it down to three, and this is my own personal, you could argue with this, debate with this by all means, this is my own personal, you know, subcategories and categorizations that I made. Number one, it's a lack of knowledge. People just never thought about it, especially if you were born and raised in a place that's, that's either atheistic or, doesn't, or secular in general, there's no, there's no really question about God, so it's never, it was never, it was just a lack of knowledge. That's number one. Number two, there is, there's a group of people, it's actually very large, that they believed in God, but then something happened, and now they don't believe anymore. The first group that I mentioned, intellectual, that tends to be with, uh, you know, it's something in the intellectual level. Then there is something in the, uh, in, in, the, in the state where they believed at one point, but then they stopped believing. That really, that stems a lot of the times from emotional. Now, let me give you some examples. Either it could be, they had a very hard life. And they're like, or life is unfair. Or, um, you know, someone passed away. Or they prayed for somebody, and somebody passed away. Or, you know, it could be for something that, uh, you know, unfortunately we see this nowadays a lot, they were forced into something very strongly. And if they forced something very strongly, they bounce, you know, right out of it. So, 
when you go into these, uh, you know, you know these, these categories, a lot of this happens to be with uh, something that is based off emotions and not based off intellect. And then there's a third category where people just don't want to believe in it. They just don't want. Either it could be, and I put this basically in three categories. Thank you very much. So uh, they could either be, uh, you know, in, in uh, three different categories. Number one, it could be in uh, either because people just want to do whatever they want in, in life. They want to get all the pleasures that they want. They want, they want to just enjoy life. And they don't want to be, you know, thinking about, am I going to get punished? Am I going to do this? They just don't want it. Number two, they did a very, very big sin, let's call it. And if there is a God, then I'm in really big trouble. If there's no God, then I am okay. So it's, you know, it's, it's the idea of, of sort of, it's like cognitive dissonance, right? It's the idea that I want to make myself feel good. And the way that I'm going to make myself feel good is by saying, hey, there is no such thing as there's a God. And finally, the last one is they're just not interested. I've, I've spoken to people on this. They just don't care. They couldn't care less about God, about religion. And you know what? There's not much that, that, that can be done in that, uh, in that particular uh, scenario. So now... What I boil it down to, the, the, I really feel, I personally feel this very strongly, that a lot has to do with knowledge. Now, I'll give you an example. So let's say somebody um, doesn't keep Shabbat. And what are we over here? Ashkenaz is fired. What is a mix? mix? Okay. So, um, okay. So, all right. So, the, you know, let's say somebody wants to go on a, to a party on Friday night. And they know that they have to keep Shabbat. But they kind of really want to go to this party. So they decide, you know what, I'm going to go to the party. But let's say they would know the significance of Shabbat. Let's say they really know what it meant. Let's say they know what the power of Shabbat was. They knew what the price they had to pay if they violate it. Then with that set of knowledge, you're like, you know what? The party is not really worth it for that. So what's lacking over here? It's the knowledge. The knowledge that you would have had originally, all of a sudden, now that you had now, would change your decision. So with that introduction, the... Um, let me, let me present you how I would go and, and debate this type of uh, you know, situation. First of all, um, you should know whenever people have these types of questions, they're already, they already have this preconceived notion of already what they want to believe. I heard this from Rabbi Gabriel Friedman. He said a very, very interesting comical story. There were two people that were sitting over there. They were looking at an animal. And they were arguing of what this animal is. One person said it's a cat. The other person said it's a bird. And this one said, what, are you crazy? It's like, for sure a cat. And it was like, how could you even see a cat? It's for sure a bird. And they were arguing, cat, bird, cat, bird, cat, bird. They were arguing nonstop. Until finally, one of them said, you know what? <clears throat> let's test it. They threw something at it. And let's see what happens. So they threw an object at the, at the animal. And the animal flew away. So one of them said, you see? I told you, it's a bird. And the, guy, the other guy says, you know, I would have never would have believed this unless I've seen this with my own two eyes. A cat that can fly. Unbelievable. The idea is that people want to believe whatever they want to believe. That, I have people that come and they, they debate me, and I'll tell you my first four steps that I do. My first four steps are like this. So I ask them like this. Okay, first of all, what do you associate yourself? There's, there's three categories that you can put yourself into. A, you believe in God. Or you're what we call agnostic. Agnostic means that you're not sure. Maybe there is a God, maybe there's no God. And category number three is an atheist. Atheist means that you know for sure that there's no God. So the people, yeah. What if, um, the category of there was a God, there isn't one anymore, you care. Like he's not involved in the other. So you're talking about something about deism, like, like something that, that God no longer has. Uh, well, no, atheist. Atheists believe that there was never was a God, never will be a God. So it's a, it's a different category. Um, that's, I guess in, in that aspect, they, I would still put them in the category that they believe in God. It's just something that you, 
not relevant anymore. But they still believe that there is a God. Then, then the way that we're going to go and prove that, that's, that's we have to go through religion, which we're not going to touch yet, religion. So um, when, you, when you're dealing with atheists, and I've spoken to quite a few atheists, and you tell them like this, it, it's irrational to be an atheist. It's, it, put it this way, it's impossible to be an atheist. Let me explain what I mean. In order to know that something doesn't exist, you have to know everything that does exist. Like, do you understand that? That if I were to tell you that in the Amazon jungle, there is a flying cat. I'll just use that example. Uh, and you say, there's no way that there's a flying cat. I'm like, how do you know? Do you know of all the species of cat? Maybe there is a flying cat. I believe there's a flying squirrel. No, I mean, it doesn't actually fly. I think it just glides, whatever it is. But they have, how do you know that there's no flying cat? In order for you to say by, for certain that there's no such thing on planet Earth as a flying cat, you have to know all the species of all the animals and know for certain that there's no, there's not. And you don't know anything. We know roughly we have 4,000 different animals. We know roughly of all the animals and the species that we have, but we, we're, we're discovering new things. There's always things that, especially when you're dealing with oceans and things like that, things in the depths. So we don't, in order to say that something does not exist, you have to know everything that does exist. So I would ask the person, do you know everything that does exist? And they'll have to say no. So how do you know that God doesn't exist? Because you don't want it to exist doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Because this is what your opinion is doesn't mean that it's true. You're just saying something, but just know that it's irrational. Then I'll take it a step further. Is there a 1% chance that God exists? And they say, uh, 1%? Yeah, fine, I'll give you 1%. So I'll tell them like this, okay? In the beginning, already, already right now, you know that you're not an atheist anymore. You want, you're an agnostic. So he says, fine, I'm an agnostic. So I said, right now, already, we, we've, went, went, we've conquered so much ground. You went from an atheist to an agnostic. That's congratulations. You get a mazalto. Maybe you should make a kiddush or something. You know, like, it's amazing what you, what you went through. But people call themselves atheists, and they don't know. And then I take this a step further. What percent chance is there that God exists, that God doesn't exist? So he said, 1% there is? He says, yeah. What about 5%? He says, you know, yeah, 5%. I go up, let's use 25%. 25% chance. Do you think God exists? 75%? No chance that there's a God. 25%? Maybe there is. And he says, uh, yeah, you know what? I'll give that to you. 25% chance God exists. 75% chance God does not exist. So what I usually do at this point is I take out four cups and I fill them all up with whatever liquid that I have, you know, water, juice, whatever it is. I fill it all up. And I go to the person and I say, listen, I say, in one of these cups is cyanide. That's poison. You're drinking that. You're, you're dying immediately. The other three cups are like a supernatural potion that anything that you desire and you want in life, you're going to get. You want money. You want wealth, health, whatever it is that you want, you drink it, you get it. You could drink one cup. Would you go... So again, you have a 25% chance of dying over here in this risk. Would you go and take that chance? And thank God I speak to usually intelligent people and people that want to live. And they think about it for a second and be like, you know what? No, I wouldn't take a, you know, I wouldn't take a 25% chance of, you know, that maybe it would be cyanide. I'm like, but think about it. Like, you could be the most popular, famous, anything that you want in life, you'll get for, with that. And they think about it again, and then they still say, all the time, unless you don't want to live, and then there's a different, you know, we have to speak about a whole different topic than God. And then, you know, they say, no, I'm not going to take the chance. I'm like, what about 1%? I have 99 cups of all the powerful potion, whatever, this magic thing. There's one cup that's cyanide, and it's full to this table. You get to drink one cup. Would you take that chance? And you know what? Most people would still say no. I'll take it even a step further. There's a thousand cups. One of them is cyanide, is poison. Would you still go and risk it and take it? 
And you know what? I've asked this to a lot. Here's where people get a little bit iffy. Well, a thousand, what's my life worth? You know, start doing the mental math. You know, like I really don't, you know, and then whatever. So I, this is where you see how depressed people are in life. You know, <laughs> be like if they're, you know. So um, talking about getting to the root of the problem, you get to see how people think. So, but I still get a large percentage of them would say no. So then I, I asked them, let me ask you a question. For 25% chance, you're, willing, you're not willing to risk it and drink to get anything. Even a 1% chance, you're not even willing to risk it. But yet, for a fact that 25% chance maybe God exists, you're willing to risk eternity. Over here, you're willing to risk not die. You're not willing to risk dying. You live, what, 120 years? You're not really willing to risk that. But for all eternity, for everything that you change, that you're willing to risk, does that make sense to you? This is usually when they start, I don't know. They don't usually have answers or questions. Yeah. Yeah, but you're 100% sure that 100% sure. Yes. Yeah, because you said that one of the cups. Oh, you're not 100% sure. So these, uh, so, so these, um, these people, I asked them, I said 25% chance. Do you believe that there's a God? That's not 100%. That's 25 It's the same odds. Right, so that's still not true. It's, oh, we, oh, we, we're just, we didn't even scratch the surface yet. This is the introduction of the introduction. <laughs> Squared. Okay, so now, <clears throat> no, no, this is just putting the people in the right mindset. Um, so that's, that's where I go, you know, that, and then I go on and I, and I, and I continue like this. No, we're, again, we're not approving it Okay, so then we go on, on a different, um, on a different uh, you know, angle. And I say, I speak to, let's say, an atheist right now, agnostic, both of them. So and I tell like this, and I say, listen, what is the price if I'm right? And what is the price if you're right? So let's say you're right. There really is no God. So what did I lose out at the end of the day? So I wore, you know, a little extra thing over here. I had some tzitzit. I had to keep Shabbat. God forbid I spent some time with my family. You know, like, what is it already that I had to wake up and pray in the morning? You know, like, when you put, okay, fine. So you had, you are able to have more freedom in this world. I'll give you that. But that's about it as far as it goes. But what if I'm right and you're wrong, right? You can't show up to heaven all of a sudden. Or if you don't believe in God, you know, whatever, anywhere else. You're not going to show up there and be like, huh, I guess I was wrong. Like, and be like, huh. next time, listen to me, next time, what, what do you think is going to happen? You know, you, you know, you're going there. If I'm right and you're wrong, I tell the atheist, if I'm right and you're wrong, you're in a huge problem. If you're right and I'm wrong, all right, not that much change. You know, as a religious Jew, you could still do almost anything. You could still have almost anything. You're allowed to travel, you're allowed to have delicious food. Okay, so you can't eat pork and you can't eat the... You know, the cockroach of the sea, crab, whatever it's called, the uh, um, lobster, right? So you can't eat, all, you know, those things. All right, big deal. So you, you know, live. You won't be able to eat a double cheeseburger, so you won't die of heart failure so early. You know, whatever. It will be, you know, what already are you losing out? I'm like, you're paying a much bigger price. You're not a good businessman. Are you a good businessman? Everyone wants to believe they are, especially if they're Jewish, right? They want to, you know, it's in the blood, you know? You get circumcised, and then you get your MBA automatically. So now... Um, this is where I go to the final step, step number four. And I tell them like this, and I say, let's put it this way. If I could prove to you without a doubt that there is a God, would you become religious? I don't know, maybe. I'm like, okay. Like, they usually tell me, it's something very interesting, they usually tell me, I'll have more questions. Like, they already know they'll have more questions. I'm like, I'll answer. Let's say I answer, hypothetically, I'll answer all your questions. Would you believe in God then? I don't know, maybe. I guess so. I'm like, okay, so... I win the argument, the debate, whatever it is that you want to call it. You start keeping Shabbat. I lose the argument, whatever. Pick your choosy, whatever you want me to do. And then they usually, I don't know, maybe, I, you know, 
we go back and forth. I'm like, I don't understand. I'm like, you're, you're debating. You're not sure if there is a God or if there is a God. If I could prove it to you, then where do we, why, why, are we, why are we still... Because the reason is, is they want to believe what they want to believe. People want to believe what they want to believe before they even begin. Uh, and, and you have this, you know, in the dating world, this is very, very true. Where people go on dates, especially true when you're dealing with, let's say, looking at the picture beforehand. Before already you go on the date, you already made the first impression. You already know everything. You're already, you're already thinking very differently about that girl or that guy before, you, before that guy or girl even said hi to you. Like you already have preconceived notions. So already we believe, as human beings, we believe what we want to believe. So now, <clears throat> the, you know, the, the idea is also when you look at the religious life, and there were so many studies that were done on this. Religious life versus secular life, what is better? And you could search this up. There's so... There's, so, I can't even, in the past 30 years, there were so many studies done. There was an explorer and educator by the name of Dan Boutonier. Dan Boutonier, um, he, what he went to search and find, he wanted to see where people live the longest lives. Where do they live the longest? And also, he wanted to see where people have the least chronic geriatric diseases. Meaning that they wanted to be the most healthiest and live the longest. And he found, you know, four or five zones where he called the blue zones. And he tried to see, and he studied them. He says, what makes it about you that you live a long and a healthier life? And he found some common grounds that they have in these things. And I want to share with you three of those, co- of those common grounds. Number one, each of these uh, blue zones had an idea that they each had a purpose in life. They had a purpose for something. It was, again, religious, not religious, they had a purpose in life. Number two, they focused very strongly on relationships. And number three, they each had a sanctuary time, like Shabbat, like, you, you, like a sanctuary time, just like me time, family time, whatever it was, there was, was a sanctuary time. By the way, these are all things that Judaism has been saying for thousands of years. But then you go and you look at other studies that were done. And there was one study uh, that was done that said that people uh, that are, and when I say people are religious, I don't mean Judaism. I mean any religion. Christianity, Islam, it doesn't matter any religion. They, they made a study that people that visit either the synagogue, the mosque, the temple, uh, you know, frequently live statistically seven years longer than people that don't believe in it. I don't know, I found that very interesting, you know, you know study. And they, had, and they had tons of studies again and again where, where you saw that they also did a study on happiness. Where people are more happier, people that don't believe in anything or people that believe in something. Again, doesn't matter what religion right now. Any religion or nothing. And they found that people that believe in something have a more happier life. And by the way, that makes perfect sense. Because if something not good happens to you, if you're an atheist, you're kicking yourself. Or, you know, there's nothing, no one else that you could blame. If you're religious or whatever it is, you're like, okay, God has a greater plan for me. There's something greater that's going on over there. So you're able to deal with problems a lot better. You're able to deal with the stresses in life a lot better. So of course you're going to be happier. So now... We see over here, and by the way, we didn't start proving anything yet. This is just, oh, we're almost finished introduction. So the idea is, is that, you know, even if you believe in something, already you're living a more happy and more successful life. Now, finally, for the last point of the introduction, the, <clears throat> any decision that we make in our life is never based on absolute proof. Uh, never say never. 99.9% of decisions in our life are not based on absolute proof. And I'll give you an example. You guys are eating... Uh, pizza and whatever else is there. Do you know for a fact that you're not going to get food poisoning? You guys, everybody ate already, right? Let's see, right now everyone's like, you know, like, you know, do you know for a fact that you're not going to get food poisoning? You don't. Yet you, uh, you chose that, you know, it was worth it for you to take the risk and eat it. You came and you drove here in a car. Do you know for a fact that you aren't going to get into an accident? You get married. Do you know for a fact that that marriage is going to last? 
Yet so, you, you hope so. That's really as far as you go. So you tend, what, the way that you tend to do is we tend to go and we tend to make decisions based off probability of success. Meaning, and it also depends on the severity of, of how important it is. And I'll give you an example like this. Let's say you drive down a road. And this road, tw- 20% of the people that go down this road, they get into an accident. So then you're going to think really hard, is it worth it to go down this road? You know, 20%, that's a high chance of an accident. But let's say there is another road that is only a 0.5% of an accident. You say, you know what? That's odds I'm willing to take. And that's generally how we make our decisions in our life. We base it off our, you know, we have little statistical analysis that goes on in our brains. And we say, is this worth it or is it not? You go and you get married. You say, I hope it's going to work out. I really will try for making it work out. But you don't know that it's going to work out. The same thing that we do when we look at God. When you look at God, you're going and you're trying to prove God. What we're looking for, we're going to be looking for a, the most probable answer to the questions that I will you know, present to you, not a possible answer. Now again, that is a very, very important line I just said. We want to look for a probable answer, not a possible answer. We want to look for, statistically speaking, you know, when you think logically, does it make more sense to do A or does it make more sense to do B? So now let's, let's and now here's where I begin with the proof. Usually, the way that I go with proving God uh, or debating against God is I like to use science. Why? Because science is what they usually use against God. And nine out of ten times when I speak to people about science, they don't know what they're talking about. They have zero, they have gone to college and they have taken biology, microbiology, chemistry, organic chemistry. They have taken everything. And when I ask them about these things, they're still answering incorrect. Which just proves me another factor that they're making their decision not based on facts, on empirical facts. They're making their decision based on whatever they already preconceived notions that already they had already wanted to in the beginning beforehand. So the way that I usually start off is uh, with something called the Big Bang. The Big Bang. So, and here's where we're starting with the proofs. And here's proof number one. The, usually we're at the proofs that they show that doesn't believe in God, I usually show that it does believe in God. So whatever they usually, so the Big Bang, evolution, we're going to get through all the good stuff. So, the Big Bang. So the way that it worked, um, anybody familiar with the Big Bang Theory? Three people? Anybody not familiar with the Big Bang Theory? Anybody not raise your hand for any of those questions? Because that's way you know you're just, yeah, there you go. All right. Okay. Anybody raise their hand for both of those questions? <laughs> you know, Jews just always want to be right. Yeah, sure, whatever. Like, I'm an atheist, agnostic, and a believer. Yeah, whatever it is. Whatever is right. I want to be on the winning team. You know, I once went into someone's house, and in the house, there was a mezuzah right in the beginning, right in the entrance. And I get in over there, and the second I get in, there's crosses and pictures of Mary all over the place. And then I figured, you know what, maybe someone beforehand forgot the mezuzah over there. And then, but I'm looking, there's a mezuzah on every door. I'm like, no one forgets all of them. You know, like, that usually doesn't, you know. And, you know, I see, like, uh, Tehillim over there. And again, okay, Christian, I'm not, So I asked the person, I, I, you know, to say that I'm not politically correct, that's very obvious. But, uh, you know, I, I'm very blunt also. So one of the first things I tell this guy, I'm like, what is it? You know, is it Christianity or is it Judaism? Um, so you know what he told me? He's like, I want to cover all my bases. <laughs> I don't know. And I'm like, you know... It doesn't really work that way. Um, you can't just cover all your bases because if you believe in one, that means you don't believe in the other. If you believe in the other, you don't believe in anything else. Uh, but, you know, to each their own. So, anyways, going back to the Big Bang. The way that the Big Bang... So, the, before the Big Bang came in as being, you know, like, you know, the, you know, the big new thing, there, the, since the time of ancient Greek philosophers, they believed in what is known as the static universe. Anybody familiar with this? 
The static universe? Very good. Philosophers? Pretend to be philosophers? Huh? Okay. That's good. Most people don't know. Static universe is something very, very interesting. Static universe is where the world used to believe in. What it, what, what it means is, is that the world always existed according to the static universe. Static universe means that the world always was and always will be. There was no beginning, there's no end, there's just, it always was. Now this is a great, great idea to have if you don't believe in God. Because if you have a static universe, you don't need God. Because it always existed. There was never a creator. It just always was the way that it is. But then what happened was in the 1920s, an astronomer by the name of Edwin Hubble, this, he started you know, viewing the stars and the galaxies, and he started seeing that all these stars and galaxies are going very far away. They're, they're traveling at a you know, certain speed away from Earth. And whichever direction he looked, he saw this. And then he, you know, he, he began his, you know, the, you know, the theory of the Big Bang, meaning that if everything is moving away, at one point, everything must have been together. And the way that the Big Bang theory works is that in the beginning, and again, I don't know how, you know, the textbooks do try, you know, start, uh, you know, changing things around, but National Geographic works this way. In the beginning, there was nothing. And then there was a huge explosion. And, or an expansion, if you're more you know, uh, scientifically correct. It was an expansion. And uh, with, this, in, with this expansion, this is the Big Bang. This is where everything started you know, expanding. And this is where we are today. And that's why we have this universe that we have and all the galaxies that all started from the Big Bang. Everything started with like one center of mass. And that all you know, uh, you know, ended up you know, expanding. There's a few questions that you, have to, um, that, that you have to consider. And by the way, science does not have an answer to this. Number one... How did the initial mass come from nothing? If originally there was nothing, where did the initial mass come from? Number two, there, uh, you know, the, the world, the, the universe works based on uh, natural laws. You have the laws of gravity. You have uh, you know, the law of inertia, for example. The law of inertia is something very interesting. The law of inertia says that if something is placed at rest, it will stay at rest unless another object goes and moves it. Now, this is very interesting when you think about the Big Bang. There was mass. The mass was at rest at one point. So what all of a sudden did it cause it to expand? The law of inertia should say that it should always stay exactly the same. If it was unbalanced, that whichever way that you look at the Big Bang, there must be, it leads to one thing, there was a beginning. And that's why they say the, um, the age of the universe, they say, I don't know where they're up to now, 13.4 or something like that, billion years ago, they base it off that. Meaning that what? There must have been a beginning. But there's one criteria that they don't usually mention. A beginning denotes a beginner. There has to be something. Something doesn't happen out of nothing. There's no spontaneous creation. There's no spontaneous generation. As much as they like to claim that there is, there's no scientific proof for it. The, you know, you have, uh, you know, the um, Einstein, Albert Einstein, he was teaching the static theory for a long period of time. And when they told him about this new discovery, he refused to listen to it. He's like, no, what are you kidding me? He's like, no, no, static universe. Until he went down to California to visit Edwin Hubble and look at, for the, you know, at his result. Then only then did he start, okay, fine, you know what? Uh, there is, there is a, a, you know, they, they switch it to the Big Bang. Fred Hoyle was an astronomer who coined the term the Big Bang. He said, and I quote, his atheism was greatly shaken at these developments. The athe- so people use the Big Bang to say, okay, look, there's no, cre- there's no God, there's no creator. It happened just by the Big Bang. If you know anything about the Big Bang, that shows you that there must have been a creator because there was a beginning. That beginning denotes the beginner. There must be that. And furthermore, if everything happened by chance, as science likes to claim, then how come we don't see any more Earths? 
There was a very interesting article um, in the 1960s. Carl Sagan, you know, an, an astronomer, he went and he, uh, he studied and he figured that there is two important criteria in order to, to have a planet that has that be able to sustain life on it. What he, what he was going for, he's wanted, they were wanting to see and see, is there, are there alien planets? Are there other planets in far off whatevers, uh, galaxies, that have alien life on it? And in order to search for it, it has to make sense that we have to search for it. So first we have to figure out what criteria does a planet need to be able to, to sustain life. And when they search, they, you, know, you know, this Carl Sagan, he said there's two criteria. Number one, you need a star. You need a right star. And number two, you need the planet the right distance from that star. If you have those criteria, you'll be able to go and find other, other you know, life planets. Now, there is roughly a... Um, there is a roughly a octillion number of planets in the universe. An octillion is one followed by 27 zeros. If you do the simple math, if there's two criteria required, needed, for to have a, a planet that sustains life, that means there should be about a septillion amount of planets that have other life on it. That means that's one with 24 zeros following afterwards. That is a, that is a lot of planets out there. So, in the early 1960s, Congress set up a, um, a, a NOAA fund. It was called the, the SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And they did this until 1993 where Congress defunded it. Now, why did Congress defund it by 1993? Because originally Carl Sagan said there is two criteria. But then a few years later, they were like, you know what? No, there's not really two criteria. There is five criteria. A few years later, it, the 5 turned into the 10. And then 10 turned into the 20, and the 30, and the 40, and the 50. As of today, we have more than 200 criteria that are required that every single one of them must be met exactly in order to sustain planet, uh, you know, an, uh, you know, any, any life on any planet. Meaning that the number from the septillion, from one followed by 24 zeros of, of alien life, reduced significantly, so much so that it is unlikely that we are even here today. It makes no sense that we are even here today. And in fact, just like one example, you know, uh, we have Jupiter, you know, nearby, fairly nearby. In order for us to be able to, to sustain as a viable planet, we need to have Jupiter. Jupiter is huge. And the bigger the mass, the greater the gravitational pull. And, but what happens is that there are a lot of asteroids, a lot of, of, of rocks that are flying in space that would fall into Earth. But what happens is, let's say Earth is right over here, and Jupiter is right over here, and the, the, you know, it's projected to hit Earth, but what happens is Jupiter causes it to move the, the direction. Instead of, because it's so, the gravitational pull is so strong, it ends up crashing into Jupiter instead of crashing into Earth. So there's so many different criteria that are required to even have a life, uh, to have ability to have life on any planet, that it makes zero sense that we are here standing here today. So, when you look at this, you know, and they try to do some sort of like math, the, if you figure out the probability, the probability of us being here today is as if we're taking a quarter and flipping it 10 quintillion times in a row and every single time landing on heads. That's the likelihood of us being here today. And people still say, yeah, it all happened by chance. And we're going to speak about this a lot today. Mathematically, doesn't make sense. Your answer is not the most probable answer. You know, it's a possible answer, but it's not the most probable answer. Now, when you look at the Big Bang, the Big Bang shows more that there is a God than there is not a God. Let's speak about evolution. One thing that I love about evolution, hot topic. Woo! People, evolution, by the way, evolution is a religion. I don't know if you're familiar with that yet, but evolution, people believe in evolution with such a munan bitachon, it's, 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 it's amazing. So now, 
reason why I like to speak about evolution is because I have people that come and they tell me, listen, you know, really, the Bible, the Torah, it makes sense. There's so many crazy stories that happen in the Torah. You have over here, you know, like uh, the flood, really, the, the splitting of the sea, the ten plagues, all those things, really. And I, and I usually ask them, do you believe in evolution? And they're like, of course. And I'm like, really? Evolution? We came from monkeys? You know, like, this is where you believe in? Like, you have a hard time believing that there was a splitting of the sea, but evolution you're okay with. That makes perfectly sense to you. And they were like, yeah, scientific evidence. I'm like, really? Okay. Please do share. Let's, let's take a little journey on the scientific evidence that we have on evolution. So, and by the way, if somebody does believe in evolution, that doesn't mean that they don't believe in God. Abshishan Fall Hirsch says that if evolution does come out to be true and that people have to believe in it, that is even a more reason to go and, and praise God. Look at God. God only had to create one nucleus. And from that, everything else was able to come from that. So instead of, there's two ways to look at it. You can look at it, uh, you know, from one angle, there's no such thing. They'll look at it and be like, look how amazing God was that he created it from one thing. The problem, I say the biggest problem that I have in evolution is one word, random. Random, and, and you'll soon see what, you know, what I mean by that. Let, let's first uh, you know, understand what evolution is. Evolution means that something that started off in a simple form mutated and changed and became more complex. Now, the idea is, is that there are, uh, there are things that are called mutations. Mutations are things that are changing, and these things that are always happening. Now, mutation can have one of three options. It could either be beneficial, it could either be detrimental, or it could either be neutral. Now, generally speaking, we know the natural selection, the strongest will survive. The one that's more beneficial, that is the mutation that will survive. That is the idea of evolution. Evolution means that we started off at something, and then slowly over time, we had a bunch of beneficial mutations until we became a different species, until that species became a different species, and so on and so forth, you know, uh, where we are today. Okay, so that is what evolution means. Now, it is very important when you're dealing with evolution and you're dealing with evidence of evolution, is the idea of microevolution versus macroevolution. You guys familiar with that concept? Yeah? Okay. So let me explain very, very briefly what that means. Microevolution... Microevolution is, uh, let me give you an example. Let's say um, you have a little um, antibiotic, even before that. You have bacteria in a dish, and you pour antibiotic on that bacteria. What happens to that bacteria? It will kill out that bacteria. The antibiotic will go and kill out that bacteria. But bacteria, there are certain bacteria that can develop through mutations a resistance against these antibiotics. An example is something called MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. This type of bacteria is resistant to this type of antibiotic. Why? It just, over the, the way that it, that, it, that it evolved, it evolved as being more, uh, um, I don't know, it, like it was able to go and protect itself against this type of, uh, you know, of antibiotics. There are also insects. They're known as DDT, they're mosquitoes, known as DDT-resistant mosquitoes. These are mosquitoes that, because they breed so quickly, they come resistant to insecticide. And these are what we know as micro. Micro means small, small mutations. They still remain, you know, the same bacteria. They still remain a mosquito, but they're small little mutations. This, there's proof for it, 100%. This thing, there is proof and there's evidence. I agree with that 100%, no doubt. Microevolution, I'll give it to you. Macroevolution is where it becomes a problem. Macroevolution goes like this. There is, um, according to the, you know, the theory of evolution, about 65 million years ago, there was a, you know, a creature that came out of the ocean known as the didilphodon. This didilphodon is this four-legged creature, and from this creature, 
all the mammals that we have today came from this creature in 65 million years. Uh, so you have anything from dogs, beers, elephants, monkeys, humans, anything in, you know, in between of their bats, all came from this creature through a bunch of different mutations and, and through evolution. Now, let's go, and I'm going to present to you five issues that I have with evolution. Number one, mathematically, it makes absolutely no sense. Francis Crick. Let me give you his you know, credentials. He's a British molecular biologist, biophysicist, and neuroscientist. He was also the co-discoverer of the DNA. So he probably knows a little bit about what he's talking about, just a, just a tiny bit. Right? He goes and he says like this. In, 19, uh, in 1985, he wrote a book called Life Itself. In there he goes and he says like this. I'm going to quote for you. At the present time, we cannot whether the origin of life on Earth was extremely unlikely event or almost certainty or any possibility between these two extremes. Meaning... When asked a question, what is the probability of evolution happening? His answer is either for sure or no chance or anything in between. That's another way of saying in a very fancy terminology, I have no clue. Like there could be anything. So you're saying that this happened. Meanwhile, you, you have no clue on the probability of what it, hap- what, what it is happening. That, by the way, is not science. This science is based on hard, hard evidence. This is more religion than religion. And we'll soon see why. Fred Hoyle. He was a Nobel Prize winner in 1981. He said that a single bacteria evolving randomly, it's more likely that you have a tornado go through a junkyard and assemble a 747 Boeing jet. And I'm not just saying just the structure. I'm talking about everything functional, including your screens in the front, the small leg room, the little, what are those flaps called that, so you don't get a stiff neck? You know, you know what I'm talking about over there? You go on your flying plane... You, there's a little thing. I don't know if you guys see that. Maybe you go and you fly a plane. There's like little stuff in certain in certain airlines that you could bend it in the front. That's so you don't have a you know a stiff neck um, when you're sitting like a sardine. You know, with everybody else. You know, you're sitting. You're you're going over there in this this really tight thing. It's not even a neck cushion. It's like a it's like a hard plastic over here, and you just like sort of like there are two flaps that you could fold up like this. So and then you could you know rub very closely. Everybody's here that's been there in the past you know four thousand flights. So. Enjoy your flight, whoever's flying recently, right? Yeah, okay. So now, um, what happened, you know, when the likelihood of the bacteria evolving randomly is the same, bac- the same likelihood as a tornado going through a junkyard and assembling a fully functional 747 Boeing jet. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense? Like, oh yeah, that, that's probably what happened. That's a possible solution. That's not a probable solution of what happened. That makes absolutely no sense to me. That's not scientific. That's just guessing of what I think what, you know, you know might happen. The, that's just a bacteria. What is the odds of producing a human being? So, again, this is, you know, rounded off, but even rounded off, you know, the numbers, you know, doesn't make that difference even if it's rounded off to the nearest billion, trillion, or anything above that. The odds of producing a human are something up around 10 to the power of 1.25 trillion. Now, a lot of people don't know how big that number is. In a time period of 15 billion years... Do you know how many seconds there are in 15 billion years? I hope nobody knows, because if you do, uh, uh, then I'd love to have a lot of conversation with you. Uh, in 15 billion years, there's a lot of seconds, right? There's a lot. You know how many seconds there are in a day? Anybody? A lot higher. 86,400, I believe it is, is the number. 80, that's seconds per day. So in 15 billion years, that number is going to be huge. That number is... 10 to the power of 18. Now, what I just said was the likelihood of a human being being created randomly is 10 to the power of 1.25 trillion. 
the likelihood, the, the amount of seconds that we have in 10 billion and 15 billion years is 10 to the power of 18. Now, mathematically, does that make sense that we came from, you know, through evolution? Let's take it a step, uh, uh, you know, and this is uh, 1991, Scientific American. The, the writer was quoting Crick, you know, Francis Crick. And he says, the origin of life appears to be almost a miracle. Carl Sagan was an astronomer, astronomer a, cosmo, a cosmologist, an astrophysicist, and an astrobiologist. I guarantee you, 50% of this room doesn't even know what half of those things are. Okay, but he was all of those. And you know what he says? He says, what is the, what is the chance of having, you know, how long does it take from one advanced species to come out of another? He says, roughly about 100,000 years. So if you take, if there's 65 million years, and to change, to make a positive change, takes about six, uh, it takes about 100,000 years. So you take 65 million years, you divide that by 100,000, you get 650. Which means is, there are 650, call it ticks, tries, to get from one animal to another animal. One species to another. Now, does that make sense that you could get from 650 times from an elephant to a bat, from a diadelphodon, whatever it is, to a dog? Does that make, does that make any logical sense? You, mathematically, it doesn't make any sense. Look, yeah. They're all rough, they're roughing the averages based on whatever. They, again, mathematics, it's a, based on the evidence that they have today. Good question. I don't know where, where they're using because they can't see any evolution. <laughs> they're basing it off the idea that maybe probability, statistically speaking. Right, so there has to be like something that changes that they're They're not because there's nothing. Uh, or, or they could base it off maybe fossils of what they claim they think that's changed. So let's speak about fossils to, you know, to, to bring that up. But you're right. Your question is excellent, uh, which makes their, their problem much worse. Uh, because you, there's no way to actually mathematically you know, produce that accurate you know, description because we don't have evidence from that time, even if you deal with fossils, even if you deal with anything else. So there is um, the most modern humans. They're known according to the evolutionary theory and according to the They're known as something called Homo erectus. Homo erectus started uh, off about 2 million years ago. 2 million years ago, um, when they found these uh, fossils, the, brain so- uh, the skull sizes, better yet, of these fossils were between eight to 900 cubic centimeters. So eight to 900 cc's. Modern human brain sizes is about 1,500 cubic centimeters. Meaning, in two million years, we almost double the skull size and the brain size. We almost double that. Now, we have roughly, you know, in every brain, there is 100, um, there is 100 billion neurons. Now, there's 100 billion neurons in, in our brain today, meaning that if we have the size, we have the neurons. So 2 million years ago, there were 50 billion neurons. Now we have 100 billion neurons. Now we have 50 billion neurons. Yes. How do they know the humans? Good question. We'll speak about, the, you know, the, the, we'll speak about that also. They don't... Well, well, well okay. The evidence, put it this way. The evidence is very weak. You're right. But I'm proving them wrong from their evidence. Not from, I'm not questioning their evidence. True. That's true. But how Ah, very good. So that's a different question that we'll deal, hopefully, if you want, we'll deal that afterwards. Uh, that's also a possible answer. You're asking about the age of the universe. Let's finish it. Not necessarily. Who said? Okay, so that's a different question. We'll, we'll speak about that afterwards. When we do our, remind me afterwards when we finish this, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll do it very interesting. I have a whole class online, about an hour long, 
on Torah anytime that speaks specifically about the age of the universe and how it doesn't actually contradict. Well, I'll give you a brief uh, synopsis afterwards. Okay, so let's uh, go. So what they're saying over here is, is uh, right, you know, two million years ago, 50 billion neurons. Now, 100 billion neurons, which means is in two million years, there had to double somehow. So any way you break the math, anybody here a math major? Anybody here an accountant? Okay, so you're on math. Uh, yeah, it's close enough. Uh, oh, really? Right now, it's just turbo. Right? Do they all use TurboTax in the back? They're like, oh, sure. And they're like, just like, put like, everything in TurboTax. Huh? <laughs> okay, Excel is math also. So, um, but, right. The bottom line is, uh, you know, I find math fascinating because the uh, bottom line is everything is mathematics. Everything is the foundation of it. No, like, okay, fine. You know, you ask me, okay, whatever, we're going to use trigonometry. You know, like, you know, okay, fine. You know, most likely not because you're asking that question. But, you know, the, there are people that do use that information. And the bottom line is you could break, math is beautiful. You could break everything down to system. It's, it's whatever. It's fascinating. But anyways, whatever way you break down this math, it makes no sense. Let's say that we could put a new generation every 10 years, which is, by the way, very unlikely. We know, you know, you don't have children, you know, until, let's say, roughly an average of 20 years old. But let's say 10 years. How many generations are there in 2 million years if every generation is 10 years? The answer is, being that no one raised their hand to be a man, you know, it's 200,000. There's 200,000 generations. Meaning that every single generation, if you break it up evenly, you would have to add 250,000 neurons in order, to, in order to make up in that 2 million year gap from 50 billion to 100 billion. Or you could go anywhere in between. You could say every 100,000 years, 2.5 billion neurons need to be added. Whichever way you look at it, it makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't make any, mathematically speaking, it doesn't make any sense. That is one, that is, we just finished one problem that I have with evolution. One problem I have with evolution is mathematically speaking, it doesn't make any sense. Problem number two. Problem number two is, you know, where did the first living cell come from? So the way it works with, uh, you know, and it really it's correlated to the Big Bang. You know, well, technically not, but, you know, like, uh, originally the, the earth was a, I don't know, hot lava, whatever you want to call it. And then all of a sudden it cooled down, it started raining, then there was a soup, you know, whatever, you, you know, anybody is familiar with what I'm talking about. And then, uh, no one is familiar with what I'm talking about? Nobody here learned evolution? Oh, Hashem, excellent. Oh, you do know what I'm talking about, pyramid of soup. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, which high school did you go to? Which high school? Uh, yeah, yeah. They teach, they teach uh, evolution? I have a phone call with a rabbi. Okay, <laughs> so now um, the <laughs> I have no problem teaching it, but I have a problem if you're not going to be intellectually honest with it. I took regions. I didn't need regions for evolution. Is that what it was? Maybe I don't remember. <laughs> it's been a while. So okay. So now it could be. So now, um, okay. The question is, where did the first living cell come from? Originally, everything was rock. Then it was water and rock. Where did the first living cell come from? There's two possible answers. Number one, spontaneous generation. Poof, there was a ma- it just happened. It just came there. Number two, there was a creator. Now, and I'll, I'll, with all intellectual honesty, what's more likely? We don't see spontaneous generation. And they're trying to prove it now. Be like, well, technically, with this and this, and there's carbon, there's hydrogen, and really with helium. You know, they go, from everywhere you go, I'm like, come on, you're pulling at strings over here. You're not being intellectually honest. That's number two. Where did the first living cell come from? Number three, there's one very, very back, big fat piece of evidence that we're missing, and that is we're missing all the evidence. There is no fossil record of any transitional period. If there is evolution, we should see an in-between species, right? The crocodile, the in- half crocodile, half duck. You know, we should see the in-between, the half cat, half, whatever it is, we should see the in- species with half-made you know, wings, 
Wings don't, don't, you know, slowly, you know, we don't see that. We don't have that. And Professor Herbert Nilsson of Lund University from Sweden said it back in 1954. He says the fossil material is now so complete that the lack, and I'm quoting, the lack of transitional series cannot be explained by the scarcity of the material. We don't have it. There is no fossil record to prove evolution. Why not? There is nothing. That's problem number three. Problem number four, there was a biochemist by the name of Michael Behe. He, you know, his, his uh, angle on it was on a biochemical challenge of evolution. Now, there's something called blood clotting. So when you get a cut, your blood, you know, clots so that, and it sort of like closes that, that, that hole so you don't bleed out. Now, obviously, if the wind is big enough, it's more difficult. It's very difficult to clot and so on and so forth. But he goes and he explains, he's a biochemist, and he says in order for blood to clot, there is numerous amount of chemical reactions that have to take place in order for the blood to clot. Now, he's, he goes and he explains like this, something very interesting. All these numerous chemical reactions mean nothing alone. Together, they form a blood clot. Which means is that if you say evolution did happen, how did blood clot? There's so many things that were not beneficial. There were mutations that were not beneficial. Why did they stick around? There's so many mutations that have to happen. There's so many biochemical reactions that needed to happen in order for blood to clot that all of them by themselves are useless unless they all combine together. And he has, a, you know, he had a whole book on it. Um, he called it Dar- the Darwin Black Box. That he goes and he explains these things. It makes absolutely no sense. And by the way, these are from, I don't know if you guys are familiar so far, I'm just proving or causing issues with evolution from science perspective. We didn't even touch the Torah yet. We didn't even, like, there was nothing about that. We're just dealing it from that. And finally, number five, the issue, the fifth issue that I have with um, with evolution, is in 1948, a Harvard University geneticist by the name of Ernest Mayer. He went and he tried to manipulate the DNA of a fruit fly. Now, a fruit fly, this particular fruit fly, has, you know, naturally grows 36 bristles. He was able to go and manipulate it and change it to grow as low as 26 bristles and as high as 56. But the second that he pushed it above those bounds, the fly died out. It wasn't able to survive. And what something also very interesting happened is that Wherever these flies were, when he allowed them to breed normally, within about five generations, they all returned to their normal DNA. Which means is that he tried to change the DNA. He tried to physically manipulate and change them to, to make the evolution. He was trying to give a catalyst, if I could say, to the evolution. But yet what happened was is that it didn't evolve. It actually went back to what originally, was originally, you know, how it originally was created. Now, when you're dealing with evolution... And, and somebody mentioned, I think it was you, there is something known as scientific fraud. Scientific fraud, and, and uh, uh, some of it is by accident, some of it is by purpose. I'm going to give you two examples. Number one, National Geographic. If you want to look it up, it's in the 1998 July edition. Yeah. Where they, how, so you're asking is why is there an instinct animal if it could be, that, well, they'll, they'll say that. Yeah, and an animal being instinct could be for a numerous reason. It could be, it, it, well, eventually, if let's say, let's say, for example, there are certain animals, and I can't uh, recall this offhand, where they used to hunt them for the, their fur, tusks. I, I, I want to, they're, they're, they're like, what? Well, that, that's really old, but I'm saying... You said, why didn't they evolve into something else? Because if they caught... So, let's say he finds... Monkeys became birds, whatever. So, 
So your question really is, let me ask, is this your question? If we came from monkeys, then why are there still monkeys? So why isn't it continuing? No, it's totally not. How does it in evolution and Well, I, I don't see that as a, as a problem because you could say that, I don't know, the humans went and killed out all the animals. They were hunting it. Yeah, oh, so you're saying that maybe eventually in two million years they'll reproduce and they'll come out another, you know, orangutan. Yeah, it could be. It's possible. So you're, you're fighting off and be like, there's no such thing as an extinct animal. Eventually they'll come back. Yeah. Where's the more evolved? I guess we don't know yet. I don't know. Well, there you go. Eventually we'll evolve to mutate and to, uh, you know. So... Yeah, I, I know. I agree with you. Why don't we have superpowers? That's a, you know, it's a good question. Um, you know, some people do think they have superpowers. Those people usually wear tinfoil hats. Uh, but um, in any case, the um, okay. So now, when when you're going to scientific roads, so National, National Geographic, 1988, in July edition, goes out and produces a dinosaur. Uh, it's like a dinosaur to bird, which is like a huge thing in evolution. Like they sort of some sort of like semi-transitional type of thing. And in October 2000, National Geographic had to put out another thing, another saying that it was in, they found fossils in China of like a half dinosaur, half bird. And then they, in, in, the, in the October 2000 edition, they had to recant and say, you know what, like we were wrong. It was incorrect. Now, what happened? How did that, that work? It's something very interesting. Um, a lot of fossils being found in China. And the Chinese farmers were using the land, and they found these types of fossils. So what happened was is that they would sell these types of, you know, they would sell it. And they realized the more unique the fossil, the more money they get for it. So they started making them more unique. And they started doctoring their own fossils. And they took a bird, they took this, and they just glued it together and be like, aha, we found it. There is a mermaid. You know, like, you know, like this is, by the way, that's also one of the things that have, I don't want to get into it, but there was, you know, they, they took a half human, half fish, and they put it together and be like, haha, there's proof of a mermaid. So, that's, that's a one. There's something, there, there was a huge scandal um, on the embryo development. There was, a, there, was a, uh, there was a person by the name of Ernest Haeckel. Ernest Haeckel was a professor of zoology, a marine biologist. He was a qualified medical doctor, and he was an artist. And he used all this to try to convince people about evolution. He really believed in evolution, and he tried to sell it in Germany. And he, read, and he, and he, wrote, and he produced these diagrams of animals and humans, of the embryos, and he showed how similar they are. And he went, he uses an artistic talent, and he went throughout, you know, Germany. And, you know, some people say that he single-handedly went and he was able to convince a lot of, a big majority of the German population to believe in evolution based off his, of his drawings. Now, while he went and he produced his drawings, in that time, the, there was, the fellow scientists at that time, they were like, ooh, something's off over here. Like, either he's making a big mis- misrep- misrepresentation of reality, or he's completely deceiving and he's fraudulent. Something doesn't make sense based on his pictures. And in 1997, there was an embryologist by the name of Dr. Michael Richardson. He published real photographs of the relevant embryos, from the animals to the humans, and he showed how different they really are. And this, by the way, this guy, Ernest Haeckel, was end up being proved a fraud by his own university. And, uh, and this was, you know, you're talking about well over 100 years ago. 1997, they went and they proved it with real pictures of the, the embryos, how different they are. Yet, there's a very big question because textbooks, there are, there are some textbooks that still use those pictures today. Now, that was proven wrong so long ago. Why are they still putting it inside over here? Now, I'm going to ask you like this. Is it really scientific evolution? 
Or is it a religion? It's a belief. You're believing it because you want to believe it. It makes no sense. Now, if evidence does come up that prove it, I will gladly review that evidence. But until that comes, you're selling a religion. You're not selling something that's based off facts. You're not selling off something that's based off something that makes sense. You're selling something that makes mathematic, ma- mathematic, mathem- mathematically, no sense. Getting too ahead of myself. Probability, statistically, doesn't make any sense. Logically speaking, doesn't make any sense. And yet we're saying, yeah, we believe in evolution. Prove to me, please, where is your scientific evidence? And they can't. I've had numerous, and, and I would gladly speak to anybody you know, regarding this. I've yet to have somebody go and say, well, this, you know, you're wrong, and here's the answer for this. I, I would gla- I'm, I'm looking for that, and I've yet to find it. So that is evolution. That is, so we start over, the big, we said with the Big Bang, we said evolution. Let's go to something called intelligent design. Intelligent design, think of it like this. You're um, going in a cave. You're going hiking in a cave, right? And as you're traveling in a cave, you see, um, as you're traveling in a cave, you see, a, um, you see rocks that seem to have fallen down, but they spell out very neatly A, B, and C. Now you're, gonna, you're thinking about it be like, hey, well, listen, it's a possibility that there was an earthquake, rocks shook, fell down over here, and wrote A, B, and C. Does that, can that be? Yeah, technically it can be. Or would you say, no, probably somebody came here and put the rocks in the order that looks like A, B, and C. Now, imagine you walk a little further down, and you see somebody right on the wall, you know, Pharaoh was here. And you guys have this in Brooklyn College, you know, you go into the college, and you know, it sees, it says like, you know, Shaniqua was here. Uh, well, I wouldn't see that because I would be in the wrong bathroom. But, uh, you know, have you ever, you, you can see that over here? In high school, I don't know, you, you know, you go to men's bathroom, right? And you go, you know, in the stalls over there. And you see over there, like, Chad was here. I don't know why people feel the need to mark their territory. And they don't mark it with, like, pen. They carve it out. Like, who's carrying a dagger with them to the public bathroom? And be like, you know what this is missing? It's like my canvas. Be like, you know what? Like, he cuts over there and he scratches it out. Chad was here. Five years go by and he's like, you know what? Let me check out that stall. I marked it. And he goes back over there and then he sees like somebody else came over there and like carved out an arrow and said, Chad is a loser. And he's like, what? I am not a loser. And then he goes and he says, Chad runs his own business at www.buymybusiness.com, whatever it is. You know, and they put all that information. Now you're going in the bathroom, Right. And you're looking at the modern art that you have, you know, displayed over there. And uh, you see this. Now, are you going to say, well, somebody came and wrote it, carved it with anger issues, obviously, you know, that, you know, decided they carved it. Or maybe, maybe somebody came with a lot of keys and he was trying to tickle the wall. And it just happened to write down, Chad was here, Chad is a loser, and then Chad has his own business. Like, is it a possibility? Yeah, it is a possibility. But likely, if you use your brains, what makes more sense? No, somebody came over there who possibly has no life and carved his name in the bathroom stall. And that's, you know, that's, his mar- that's what you would say. Now, when you look at Earth, when you look at the beauty of Earth, does it make sense that it all happened from just, you know, poof? Or does it make sense that somebody created it? Earth is a lot more sophisticated than somebody writing letters on a wall. Yet if we see letters on the wall, we'll say for sure somebody put it over here. But yet we see something sophisticated as a human being. We're saying like, yeah, we evolve somehow randomly through random mutations for everything. Let me take you through a, you know, a, you know like let's say you look at the brain for a, for, for a minute. 
every, every minute, the brain goes through 750 to 1,000 milliliters of blood that is flying through, flowing through the brain. That is roughly about a bottle of uh, wine or, or alcohol, 750 mLs. That's what's going through your brain every single minute. Now, if the brain stops flowing for around 8 to 10 seconds, you start losing consciousness. So every single minute that you're alive, you're having this continuous cycle of brain flow going through your, through your, through your brain. And by the way, after five to six minutes of not having continuous brain flow, that's when, you, when, the, that's when there's brain damage. If you take a piece of brain tissue the size of a grain of sand, that's very, very small, you have over there over 100,000 neurons in that tiny little thing. Apparently, it all happened by accident. The brain information travels at around 268 miles per hour. That's the, the, the relay information that you have. Your storage capacity is, is, is virtually unlimited. You have about 70,000 thoughts that come into you every single day. Now, when I was reading this study, I wondered if they did you know, men or women. Because if it's a woman, if that's a men one, it's a woman one, you add a few zeros into that. There's like 70,000 thoughts per minute. Like, that's what's going on. Men, we, we go one at a time. Right? We're just like... One at a time plays. Then we're focusing over here. A woman does like 7,000 things at one time. Men, we're just like, you know, we can't multitask at all. But even you take the low number, 70,000 thoughts per day that goes on to that, the amount of blood vessels that you have in your brain are over 100,000 miles in length. Happened by accident? Does that make sense? You have over 100 billion neurons, like we said before, in your brain. And your brain is about 73% water. So you're not even utilizing all that, you know, space. The, the amount of, um, of information that the brain processes per second is over one million messages. Because you realize, besides our thoughts, it is using our, you know, as, besides our phys- physiological, uh, psychological, emotional well-being that the brain is constantly focusing on, it's also, you know, focus, uh, all the pressure that we feel. It's something we, we're, we're feeling that. We're seeing things. We're hearing things. We're smelling things. We're tasting things. Our throat is dry. Maybe we need a drink. All these things are happening in every single second. You have over a million messages that happen in your brain every single second. That happen by accident? Could, does that make sense to you? Chad came here, was here, whatever it was, with a Z, right? Because they don't know how to spell. They, that happened by, for sure by somebody. But this brain happened by accident? You have, um, you, know, you know, look at the eye. The eye has over 2 million working parts. The eye is so sophisticated. It's crazy. The eye, by the way, is like, the brain is like one of the most sophisticated, you know, organs. The eye is like second. A fingerprint has about 40 unique different types of characteristics. The iris has over 256 different unique characteristics. That's why retina scans are becoming more as a, um, it's, it's more, you know, secure because there's a lot more that can, you know, that, that has to be copied in order to get to there. The human eye can see over 500 different shades of gray. That, that, for men, I would say one, but really what you could say, because like it's just gray. I never understood. Like, there are colors that exist that men don't know. You know, my wife would tell me, like, okay, can you get this in peach color? I'm like, I start laughing. I'm like, peach is a fruit. I'm like, that's not a color. But like, no, it is. Like, if I'm magenta, get it in magenta. I'm like, is that a transformer? I don't know what that is. What's magenta? Like, I, I, I you know, I, my 10-year-old daughter, when she was like seven, she knew what magenta, I to this day don't know what magenta is. I still don't know. I think it's a red, right? It's a red? Purple. Purple. Okay, I was close. If you're colorblind. Um, you see, your eye sees over 7 million different colors. Okay, by, by accident, this all happened. The, um, you know, every single square centimeter of your body has pressure sensors and heat sensors. You realize that if you touch something and it's hot, you'll feel it. You'll move it away every single centimeter, which means is at every single second in your body, 
there's messages going from every single, every single part of your body to the brain saying, we're good. System's clear. All good. Until one of them is like, no, hot. You know, and then you, you pull it. We have constantly so much messages going through our brain. Besides the fact that this is only just one part. We have a cardiovascular system, your, you know, your respiratory system, your digestive system, your immune system. There's so many systems that all are war- working together in order for you to be alive today. All happened by chance makes absolutely no sense. I am, I'm statistically speaking, you know, logically speaking, it makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. That's not even, te- you know, going into the earth, the solar system, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle. There's so many things that we could go on into. You guys are all in college, so I don't have to go and, uh, you know, mention that. I'm sure you guys will study this. And it doesn't make any sense that it happened by chance. Now, there was an Oxford professor by the name of Dr. John Lennox that said like this, and I'm quoting, the more we get to know about our universe, the more hypothesis that there is a creator. So the same studies that they try to prove that there's no God actually shows that there is a God. I want to I you know, finish off with one, with one thought, and then we'll open up for, for questions. Whatever, about probably five, ten minutes. Um, and that is the idea of suffering. This happens a lot. You know why there's no God? Because look at all the evil in the world. How could there be a God and God could allow a Holocaust? How could there be a God and so many young kids have so many you know, cancers and diseases? How could there be a God and this and this and this happen? So generally speaking, whenever you're dealing with this type of question, you should know this is not an intellectual question. This is an emotional question. And an emotional question to answer intellectually is not always the smartest thing to do. But I'll give you the intellectual answers. Usually at this point in time, someone asking this question, you need it, it, they're obviously hurting. So they just need compassion. But... There is intellectual answers for it. And I'll give you four answers to this. Number one, actually before we get into that, we first have to figure out who is good and what is bad. We say, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? You ever heard that? Why do bad things happen to good people? Are you a good person? Of course I'm a good person. Okay, so now, okay, well, some people, Jews usually, Jews and Christians, be like, I don't know. You know, like, uh, but, you know, atheists, they think they're amazing. Um, why, why do good things happen to bad people? So first we have to ask is, who is good and what is bad? Now, let me explain that. What does it mean, what is bad? Imagine a, a scene that you have a little baby, and there is a very, very sharp knife that's just hanging over there. And the baby is, like, looking at it, and, you know, the baby's walking towards it. It's going to grab it. You know, the father's sitting there in the corner. He's watching this whole thing. He doesn't want to get up because he's very comfortable. But he's watching this whole scenario, and he's like, baby, baby, stop. I hope he doesn't call it baby, but let's say that, right? He doesn't remember the name because he has 14 kids. Uh, he says, baby, what's your name? Stop, go, go away. And the baby is, you know, it's, it's eyes blocked in that knife, and its hand is stretching out to grab the sharp part of that knife. Now the father sees that he has no choice. He gets out of his lazy chair, and he runs to the baby, and he doesn't have a chance to just, like, smacks the baby's hand, right, you know, away from the, on the knife. And the baby starts crying. And the baby starts saying, why do bad things happen to good people? And, first of all, a very sophisticated baby. And then, uh, well, not that smart, because we're going to touch a knife. But, whatever. Um, uh, and we pick and choose. So, the, we go, we say, like, oh, is that a bad thing? No, the father saved the baby from touching and cutting the, ba- you know, the baby's hand. So, when you look at life and we think that bad things are happening, does bad thing happen? Do we know the full picture? How many times that we had bad things happen, somebody lost their job? God, why are you doing this to me? I can't believe you do that. And then they find a job that's much better. Oh, okay, fine. Now I see. Okay, fine. You know, all of a sudden, you're like, you hate God? Oh, okay, fine, God. I see what you're saying. You know, usually it's not that way. It's like, I hate God and be like, okay, God, look what I did. I had to find my other job myself. You know the story about like, finding the parking spot? Yeah. <laughs> you guys are familiar with that? The guy's going looking for a parking spot, and he can't find the parking spot. And he says, you know, he's an atheist, obviously. Because, um, you know, religious people always find parking spots. Oh. I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, so um, he's an atheist, uh, and he says, you know what, I can't find it. If there is a God, God, here it is. I'm talking to you. Please let me find a spot. 
If you let me find the spot, I'll believe in you. And he's going and he say, I'll be the best whatever religion that he thinks is the right one. I'll be the best this, I'll bet that. Just please let me find the spot. And as he's finishing to talk, a car pulls out. And then he pulls right into the spot, right in front of where he needs to. And he goes up to God and says, God, never mind. I found it on myself. You know, we tend to think, you know, like, we blame God when it's bad, but we don't thank God when it's good. We just see the bad part in it. We go, and, you know, bad things happen, and we think it's bad. But yet we wait just a little bit, and all of a sudden, it turns to be really good. And then there's the opposite. Somebody, you know, makes a ton of money, and he thinks this is great. God. But then he finds out that because he made so much money, he has, all of a sudden, his wife was bored, you know, started fooling around, ended up, you know, he had, ended up getting a divorce. The kids had nothing to do. They ended up getting into drugs. You zoom forward, you fast forward 10 years, 15 years down the line, all that money that he made really was not to his benefit. It really hurt him. So when we look and when we see what is really good in life and what is bad in life, we can only see where we are right now. We don't know the full picture. Now, and by the way, you can see this, you know, a lot, you have these famous, you know, actors and actresses. So, you know, I only have two of them here that, you know, I wrote down, Robin Williams and Mer- Mer- what's her name? Marilyn Monroe. Uh, they both had what appears to be everything, yet they both committed suicide. But like they had fame, they had money, they had everything, but yet they, they're missing everything. And we think, okay, if I have that, then I will be happy and I'll be good. How do you know? You don't know yourself. You don't know that you're going to be good. Maybe there's going to be different, but we never know the alternative. So just by you thinking that something is bad doesn't necessarily mean that something is bad. Now, by the way, there is, well, you can say, okay, what about death? How could death be good? You're right. We don't have all the answers. We don't. But at the same point in time, you have to realize how intellectually advanced are you? And I usually tell, you know, people ask me this question. I say, do me a favor. What is 254 times 17? And they're like, well, I'm like, no, no, without a calculator. I don't know. So they got to take out a paper. They got to carry the one. And they're like, okay, how do you do the vision? And it takes them, you know, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, a minute. I tell them like this. I say, you had a very hard time multiplying three digits by two digits. But yet you want to know why bad things are happening to good people. Like, you can't even do simple arithmetic quickly and you want all the answers to the universe. And it must be if you don't have the answers, if you, the genius you, doesn't have the answers, it doesn't make sense, must be doesn't exist. Really? That doesn't make, does that make sense to you? The, that is answer number one. Now, actually, before we actually uh, close off number one, the, um, we, didn't, we didn't say, who, we said what is bad. But who is good? Now, everyone thinks they're good. Stalin and Hitler, are they good people? You think no, but to their followers, they were heroes. What about Robin Hood? Robin Hood, is Robin Hood good? He steals from the rich, gives to the poor. Depends who you ask. You ask the rich person, no, he's not good. You ask the poor people, yeah. So it's, you know, it depends on your, on your viewpoint. So who is good? What you consider that you're good? You're good according to whose standard? Because you don't rob anybody? You don't murder anybody? Congratulations. Maybe you should get a Nobel Peace Prize. Now, um, before anybody knows, any, okay. So now, um, the, you know, the idea behind this is, is that we don't know what is good and who is bad. We don't know what is bad and who is good. We, we just don't have that information, but we know that there must be some sort of other, you know, other criteria that we just don't see the big, big picture, and especially we don't see the alternative. The, okay, now answer number two. Answer number two um, is why do bad things happen? Sometimes it's to correct yourself. You ever have you know, somebody who smokes, right? And you tell, I love this, you go to people that smoke and be like, can you stop smoking whenever I want to? Can you stop smoking right now? I don't want to. And then all of a sudden, but they really can't. They try, they do the gum, the nicotine patch, you know, where they're literally like patches everywhere, you know, you know, and you know, they, you know like, I'm just breathing into my mouth, just, you know, like, you know, like they're trying as much as they can, but, but they're, you know, they're stuck. All of a sudden, they have to go, God forbid, to a doctor. 
And doctor does an x-ray on the cat, whatever, on their lungs, and they say, listen, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to die within a year. Guess what? That pack is going right in the garbage. All of a sudden, you're able to do it. What happened? Bad things happen to you. Bad things makes us change. Why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe it's because sometimes it needs to change. The Gemara Sanhedrin, I don't usually like to bring you know, religion so much into this topic, but the Gemara Sanhedrin, page 101a, uh, says that Chavivim Yisuin, bad things are sometimes good. Why? If you look at the story of Menashe, Menashe was an evil king. And when did he start, when did he become good? When did he come to do repentance? Only when bad things happen. Sometimes we don't change until bad things happen. You want to know why bad things happen to good people? Because it's time for you to change. You're doing something bad. Could be you're good, but you're doing something bad and it's something that you need to change. Number three, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does the world have suffering? Could be because of your negligence. You drink alcohol and you drive and you get into an accident. It's not why do bad things happen to good people. It's stupid things it's like bad things happen to stupid people. It's, you're just being, you know, you're, it's not something, you're, you're, bad, you're negligent. You're negligent, you've got to pay the consequences. Ignorant. ignorant. Well, ignorant is, is you don't know about it, but, but it's, uh, the idea is, is that, you know, say bad, why do bad things happen to good people? No, you're, you're a fool. You're an idiot. Take care of your health. Not bad things happen to good people. You know, you're, you're, you're an ignorant. Yeah, ignorant, whatever it is they, they, they use that. Number four, finally. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there suffering? Sometimes it's measure for measure. You do something good, you get a good reward. You do something bad, you get bad reward. People that don't believe in God usually call this karma. But call it whatever you want, it's measure for measure. Why do righteous people sometimes get good lives? They did something good in their life and they're getting the reward over here. There's many different uh, you know, things. Um, and then there is, there's, a, there's a thing that I get. I don't know if you guys ever heard this. I never asked for this test. Have you ever, you ever had people come and be like, I, you know, people are depressed usually, you know, ask this type of question. I never asked for this. I don't want this. I've spoken to suicidal people and they say, I never asked for this. Uh, you know, I don't want it. And God never gave me the choice. I'm like, who said? You know, you remember what happened before you were born? Please, do share. How do you know you didn't have a choice? How do you know that you came over here just because you're not happy where you are right now? I usually give them this, this little scenario. I say like this. I say, there is a... Um, Let's, but let's make it a little interesting. You wake up, like, drugged up. Um, and not because you did the drugs. You just wake up drugged up. And you're in this, like, very, very high maze. Like, not a corn maze that you could just, like, cheat and cut through. Like, brick walls, like, 20 feet up. Like, you can't even climb out. And you have to go, and you have no information. All you have to do is you're just going to have to try to find, you know, your way out. And you're traveling through this maze. And you're going, and you're going through this maze. And you're screaming, hell, you know, get me out of here, get me out Get me out of here. And then, you know, you're screaming, and all of a sudden a paper floats down from the heavens, from the sky. And you pick it up and be like, you are placed in this maze for our entertainment, whatever it is, and uh, if you get out, you get $10,000. You're like, okay, all right, that's not bad in a day's work. All right, I'll take it. $10,000, you go, and you start traveling through this maze. And now hours go by, and you're hungry, you're tired, you're like, you know what, I don't care, 10 grand or not, just get me out. And you're screaming, I want out, I'm going to sue you, right, everything, Jesus, I want to speak to the manager, the owner, the, you know, the, the shareholder, I want out. And then another paper flo- floats down. Be like, if you finish the maze, you get 100 grand. Never mind, you're going to be good over here, I'm going to find my way out. And you're going and you're traveling another few hours. Now, you're talking about 12, 15 hours, you're like, 100 grand, no 100 grand, I'm done. And you're screaming, another paper falls down, you're getting five million if you finish. You keep on traveling, you're going, you're trying to jump over something, you fall down, you break your arm, God forbid. And you're saying, listen, money or not, I need a medical emergency, you go in. You, you start screaming, I want out, I'm calling out, five million, it doesn't matter. And then another paper falls down and says, if you finish, you're getting $50 million. Are you going to continue? Oh yeah, you're going to continue. And if you don't, we'll just add another zero. Eventually you'll continue. 
the idea is that you go and say, I never asked for this test. I was drugged and I put into here. Why? I never asked for the test. That's because you don't know what the test is worth. If you find out all of a sudden that, oh, now the test is worth, you know, $10 million, you'd be like, all right, all right. I'll do it. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. We don't know what it's worth. So we go and we complain a lot. We complain, oh, it doesn't make any sense. They, you know, why is there? There can't be a God. You know nothing. That's how you have to start off with. When you realize that, you don't know what things are worth. And when you, don't, when you realize that, these questions are going are, you know, to fade away. So just to do a quick recap. We start off with, how do we know that there's a God? You want to know how there's a God. And by the way, we didn't speak about religion yet. Religion, that's a separate topic in itself. What religion, which religion, that's a completely different topic in itself. But one thing we do, though, if you use your intellect, you use logical sense, and you look at the world, you look at what the science claims and tells you that there should be a God, all shows that there should be a God. There is no, uh, you know, you go to the Big Bang, you go to evolution, you go to, uh, I don't know, you go to intelligent design, you go to any, any angle that you go, shows there must be a creator. The more sophisticated a creation, the more likely it is that there is a creator. just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.